Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity. I'm Flick, the Director of Fundraising at Solidarity, and I'm joined by Philip, Managing Director of European Lawyers in Lesbos. Today, we're talking about what we mean when we say crisis regarding refugees in Europe. Thank you so much for joining us today, Philip. So firstly, do you want to just tell us a bit about what your organisation does and what you think about the refugee crisis being called a crisis? Um, so European Lawyers in Lesbos is a, um, an NGO that works on the Greek islands of Lesbos and Samos. Um, we were set up in 2016 and um, have been working on Lesbos since then and, and earlier this year started a new project on Samos. Uh, basically, we have a team of um, full-time Greek asylum lawyers um, who work together with volunteer European asylum lawyers um, to provide free legal assistance to asylum seekers on the Greek islands. Um, Basically, that is, uh, in brief, on three main areas. Um, probably the, the, the primary element is preparing people for their um, asylum interview. Um, obviously, that's kind of the, uh, the critical element of the legal procedure. Um, it's the one um, whereby there is, no, there is no legal aid available in Greece to people at that stage of the, uh, of the process. So the vast majority of people... Um, and not able to speak to a lawyer beforehand. So what we try and do is to provide as many people as possible with the opportunity to speak to one of our trained asylum lawyers um, to help them prepare for their interview. The other One of the other main things that we do is also um, helping people with their family reunification applications. Um, so that's where somebody arrives um, on one of the Greek islands and already has a family member in Europe and, and applies to be reunited with that family member. And then... The third main area is um, helping unaccompanied children with their cases, particularly where they may have been incorrectly registered as adults, and so seeking to to overturn that um, incorrect uh, age registration. So, in doing that, our team of, uh, as I mentioned, our team of lawyers and um, and interpreters uh, work um, in in assisting people with their case. Um, so far, we've welcomed um, almost 250 volunteer lawyers as part of the team, um, and we have um, a, a team of five uh, full-time lawyers uh, on Lesbos and two full-time lawyers on Samos. Um, so to, to go back to your original question, um, well, I think, first of all, um, I, I don't think that um, I don't think it is a refugee crisis. I don't think it, it, it should be called a refugee crisis or a migration crisis. And I know that term was used a lot and is used a lot still, um, but I think it's fundamentally inaccurate. It's a crisis of compassion. It's a, it's a legal crisis, but it's not a refugee crisis because I think that implies that somehow the, the, people, the people who came to Greece to claim international protection, to claim asylum, were doing something wrong in that and they weren't and and they aren't when they come um they are exercising their internationally recognized legal right to claim protection in another country due to fear of persecution in their own country so i think using the terminology crisis is is inaccurate or at least using the terminology refugee crisis as i said i think that the crisis element um should be more directed towards um Europe, the European population, European uh, policymakers and uh, uh, governments and institutions, um, 
I think that one critical uh, aspect of this whole situation is that it's wrong to see this as a as a Greek issue or an Italian issue or a Spanish issue or a Maltese issue or a Cypriot issue. Um, this is a European issue and it's a European crisis, if we can use that word, um, and therefore needs a European solution. And European Lois and Lesbos, as you can kind of maybe tell from the name, um, is intended in terms of the legal profession to provide a counterpoint to that. It's, you know, we as the um, as members of the European legal profession um, acting in, in solidarity um, with Greek lawyers um, to, to try and provide some assistance to people from a, from, a, like, from a European perspective, I suppose. Definitely. I think I completely agree with all you said there. Obviously, the term refugee crisis or European refugee crisis, European migrant crisis, um, are all used quite a lot in the media, particularly in kind of Northern Europe, the UK, and the kind of whole concept of these like illegal migrants coming across isn't possible because under international law they're allowed to enter a country anyway to claim asylum so it's just incorrect on a factual basis i think at solidarity we think of it as a crisis of mismanagement so similarly to you it's not that there's a crisis through the refugees coming and exercising their legal right the crisis is that europe isn't putting in the necessary resources to support these people and fulfil its international obligations and instead is very much focused on externalising its borders, deterrent policies. Obviously, we've seen that a lot in the UK recently um, with refugees crossing the channel, Um, but we also see it a lot regarding kind of the Mediterranean border, um, Greece, stuff like the EU-Turkey deal, so trying to externalise our borders and put the responsibility on Turkey and leaving any issues that remain with Greece rather than taking responsibility as an entire continent or union Um, and it's very much framed a lot of the time as the issue is there are loads of refugees coming to Europe. Um, Obviously this is the biggest displacement of people since World War II so there are a lot of people moving, but they're not mostly in Europe. There are a lot of them, obviously, nearly three quarters are in neighbouring countries, nearly three quarters of refugees. Um, and a lot of people are also internally displaced. So the kind of concept of Europe being overwhelmed with refugees is inherently a framing to exacerbate and condone the behaviour of the governments in their inadequate responses. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that that is something that seems to be often forgotten um, in in the narrative that actually the vast majority of of people who are displaced end up in in neighbouring countries. And I mean, one in every four people in Lebanon is is a Syrian refugee. So, I mean, the numbers there are are absolutely incomparable um, compared to Europe. Um, So, like you say, this idea that Europe can't cope with um with you know an influx of of people as we've seen over the last few years um is you know it's just not it's not accurate um, when we look at um other situations um the other point that i think um uh, that that you raise is a, is a very good one about um europe's responsibility um i remember speaking to a guy um in uh, i suppose it must have been late 2016 um 
who a guy from West Africa who had come over and um, had applied for asylum and, and his his tent was right next to our container so we saw each other you know kind of every day and, and we were chatting and um, I suppose uh, back then I you know he was he was talking about the procedure and I was saying look you just have to um, you have to have faith in the process you know it's a legal process you'll go through it it will take time um, and we you know we were we were talking and then um, at a certain point you know he said look we came to Europe because we thought that you know Europe is the birthplace of human rights and that this is you know that we expected that um, and then the reality that we face is is completely different um, and that really struck home to me because you know as a proud European of course I you know was was wanting to defend um, the processes and, and defend the situation but I did find it quite difficult and I find it quite difficult now for exactly the reasons you say that with the resources available to the European Union um, it is absolutely not the case that people should there should be 10,000 people living still living in tents on Lesvos you know after the fire that happened a couple of months ago and the opportunity then to um, kind of have a fresh start in terms of build a better um, you know be better living conditions for people and you know the tragedy is is that that hasn't been realized that you know the situation is 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 as bad if not worse um, now and there will be yet again for the fifth consecutive year there'll be thousands of people living in tents um, on the Greek islands and and as you say it is not um, it's not it's not the case that the European Union could not provide adequate um, facilities it's a choice ultimately and um, you know going going back to your question about um, what what should what can um, European countries do I mean I think the key point is is um, as you know kind of touching on what I said earlier that this is this shouldn't be left um, only for the receiving countries to uh, to manage and um, fair burden sharing in terms of relocation uh, I think is um, not only the, the the right thing to do but it's the it's the easiest way um, to manage this um, situation because you know I speak to a lot of people in different European countries and they say that you know if you were to divide were to divide the number of people um, in Moria by say the number of uh, you know municipalities in Sweden or the number of counties in the UK or what you know whatever metric you want to choose the number is tiny it's t a fractionally tiny number and um, if divided that way which I appreciate would need you know you know, logistical support and organization and everything else but it would mean that actually um, it, it, the the number of people who when concentrated in one place is a large number but when shared um, in terms of the responsibility um, for uh, looking after people housing people processing their asylum claims if spread across Europe will be negligible um, and I think that's um, you know the obvious uh, first thing in terms of what European countries could do um, and you know we have seen some um, moves towards that in the last few months from from the beginning of this year and, and with corona and then with the fire in moria and there have been some moves to um, relocate uh, people from the islands particularly unaccompanied children but again they're not it's not huge numbers and it's not really happened yet i mean it's still the case that um 
goals that were set six months ago in terms of relocation haven't been met yet. So um, again, I think that's, uh, that's a matter of political will as opposed to anything else. Uh, and of course, I appreciate that Corona complicates things, but nevertheless, um, that it could be it could be achieved, particularly because the relocation push was partly due to Corona. So it was all within that um, within that framework. So I think it's possible if there was political will. Yeah, definitely. I think obviously something like a relocation scheme and burden sharing is a massive undertaking, but also the European Union is a very large organisation with a lot of very rich states. Um, and definitely could have the resources to invest in the required kind of logistics and administrative side if it chose to. And I think that really comes back to what you say about it being a choice on Europe's part. And I guess ultimately a crisis of humanity, almost. You were talking about how Europe is the birthplace of human rights, which is definitely true. The Refugee Convention came out of the response to World War II, but then nowadays we see the focus on smugglers, different governments very squarely putting the blame on smuggling groups rather than on themselves. And ultimately, they ignore the fact that the refugees to make these journeys have no other choice. Closing down the safe and legal routes isn't going to stop them seeking asylum it's just going to stop them being able to do that safely and through their deterrent policies the governments are essentially directly giving smuggling groups more power because refugees become more desperate to find a way across even when it's unsafe and even when it's extortionate and very dangerous and the number of refugees we see kind of crossing the Mediterranean or trying to cross the channel that are under 18 or that are very young children really get swept under the rug. A family isn't going to take their children across the Mediterranean Sea in a smuggling dinghy unless they really have no other choice. And the government's focus on trying to crack down on smuggling routes by deterrent policies or pushbacks which are illegal is ultimately just trying to make them themselves look better and working to make it much harder for refugees to exercise their human rights and I think ultimately a lot of the way the refugee crisis is framed is done through removing that humanity from refugees and it's really a crisis in a lot of Europe's and particularly the government's sympathy and humanity and kind of awareness that these are real people doing their best for their families. It must be very hard for you interacting with the people who it directly affects. I think it is easy to sit reading the news and be like, oh, this crisis is happening over there. It's not our problem. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, before before coming out to Westvoss five years or so ago, um, I, I worked as a lawyer in London. And like you say, it was a, along with many crises around the world, it, it, it existed in the, more in the realms of theory, in the sense that, of course, you knew about it and you could sympathize, understand maybe not the right words, but, you know, you were aware of it on a certain level. But it's absolutely fundamentally different from being here and, and, and interacting with people because the thing that really struck me and, and, and continues to strike me is that 
the people who were on Lesvos and Samos applying for asylum, who were in the camps waiting to, you know, going through the legal process, having made those dangerous journeys that you talked about and risked their lives, they are just the same as me and you. There is no difference between, they're just people. And I know for well, if I was in their situation, I would do exactly the same myself. Of course you would in that situation. If your family is in danger, you would, you would take any, any um, possibility to get them to safety. And that ultimately is, is what people are doing. And I think that, um, the, as you say, there is, a, I suppose, a concerning narrative. Looking at it from you know, being on Lesbos and looking at how issues like this are reported um, in the media, there is a narrative that, you know, kind of an underlying sense that this is somehow wrong. Um, whereas actually what people are doing, as I mentioned, are exercising their legal right. And there is nothing illegal about exercising a legal right. Um, and absolutely, as you say, that, I, you know, one of the things that, that would, I think, help with this situation is making, you know, legal routes for resettlement for for transfer from um, countries of origin is a is a solution as well or at least would contribute to a solution because as you say that the, the current situation is forcing people to take those dangerous journeys and if they could instead and um, do that from their country of origin uh, and it be a, a you know a, a fair efficient and, and robust process then I think that would help as well of course um, but yeah I think the as you say the situation is is one whereby, you know, the people going through the process, it, it is very difficult, of course, um, for, for everybody um, who is here trying to trying to assist and trying to make sure that the, the process works as it should. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's been, it has been an eye-opening experience for me, absolutely, to, to see the difference between the, um, what you, what you read in the newspapers and seeing it, the reality, just because once you, once you talk to people and realize that they are they're just doing what any of us would do ourselves, um, then it, I think it's extremely difficult then to, to demonize them um, and, and somehow look at it with this black and white, right and wrong, um, illegal immigrant, you know, legal, that those dichotomies simply just don't exist when you see the situation. Yeah, I think that that would, you know, would help counter the, the, the concerning narrative um, that does seem to be in place and uh, a, a about kind of this creation of this idea but simply by doing the act of traveling somewhere to claim asylum you are doing something wrong definitely one other question I have you touched on kind of corona and how it's in some ways almost help kind of kickstart some resettlement schemes um, and kind of force some European countries to take action, even if it is still at a very small level. Um, obviously, the peak of the so-called European refugee crisis in the media was in 2015. Um, and it's been ongoing since then, but potentially died off a bit in the news. And Corona and then things like the fire in Moria have really brought it back into the centre. Um, do you think now is the worst it's been in terms of management and the process itself or do you think it was 
worse in 2015 or do you think actually it's just always bad and has always been very badly handled? I think that throughout the last five years, there have been a variety of, of challenges. Um, and, and one of the, the challenges, certainly from a legal perspective, is how quickly things change um, and how quickly the policies and the legislation change and we have to adapt accordingly. Um, I mean, at the moment, well, I should say that one of the, the issues that has characterized the last, uh, well, the four years from 2016 to the end of 2019 was that the asylum process was very slow. So um, it could take up to a year for somebody between arrival to have their interview and then another year for decision. And so that, you know, was a long time um, to, to go through the process. Now, um, the reverse is true. And at the moment, um, people are getting their interview dates at extremely short notice. So um, in some cases, with only two days notice, in some cases, only one day's notice. So, you know, somebody might be told um, today, that their interview is at seven o'clock tomorrow morning, which obviously means it's what next to impossible for somebody to see a lawyer, get legal assistance, pro and properly prepare their case. Um, so that is a, you know, is a is a real challenge in terms of the asylum procedure. But I think just one thing that kind of taking a step back and looking at the whole situation over the last five years or so. I mean, I remember being. Um, on Lesvos uh, in Moria in January 2016, um, before uh, we set up European lawyers in Lesvos, and you know back then before the EU-Turkey deal, um, it was a case where people were transiting through the island, so uh, people weren't staying and, and, and lodging their asylum claim; they were just registering and then carrying on their journey. So people would maybe spend you know 24 hours, 48 hours on the island, and I remember um, distributing some blankets and you know, sleeping bags and tents to, to people and then leaving the um, the distribution center at two, three in the morning and seeing a family who I had given the tents to shortly earlier and seeing them putting up the tent um, in Moria, you know, mid-January 2016 and thinking it's absolutely unacceptable that there is a family sleeping one night in a tent in Moria in, you know, in this isn't what Europe should be about. And, you know, when I look back to that and I think, you know, now since then there have been tens of thousands of people in that situation and it has become normalized for there to be tens of thousands of people living in tents, living in poor conditions on the Greek islands, not just for one night, but weeks, months, even years. Um, I find it quite shocking that that, you know, from Europe's perspective, we have now accepted this. We say, you know, this is normalized. It's normal now for there to be 20, 30, 40,000 people in camps in the Aegean Islands. And for me, I think that's the, the biggest shock, the biggest challenge to see that that um, situation has just become absolutely part and parcel of our everyday life. So much so that, as you say, it doesn't make the news anymore. I mean, my friends sometimes say to me, they're like, Phil, why are you still on Lesbos? That issue was solved years ago. I, why are you still there? What are you, what are you doing? And, I, you know, it's then quite difficult for me to explain, well, actually, the situation now is more difficult than it was back in 2015, 2016, because back then, you know, there were a lot, a lot more people, sure, but they were transiting through the island. So it was a sh very, sh it was a lot of people, but for a short period, whereas now, sure, it's a small number of people, 
but people stay much, much, much longer, you know, months or years. And so in that sense, actually, the situation is much worse, but it isn't isn't reported. And and unfortunately, it seems that the only uh, time really that it gets back in the news is, is when something tragic happens. And again, that's a, a very difficult situation to see. Um, because again, it just illustrates that the whole situation has become become normalized and accepted. Yeah, it's definitely, I think Europe as a whole have become very desensitized to it. And the idea that however many thousands of people living in camps with their entire lives in limbo is no longer seen by most of us as a tragedy or even a notable problem or concern is absolutely shocking and really scary. To go back quickly to the asylum process itself, you mentioned that people previously used to wait up to kind of a year to get their interview, um, and now it's kind of a day's notice. Um, Just do you want to expand a little bit on why it's so dangerous for asylum seekers to not have time to properly prepare their cases? Yeah, that's an absolutely valid point. And, And in many cases, you know, you know, back in 2019 and earlier, that was the, the chief complaint that people, asylum seekers, refugees would say, you know, why do I have to wait so long for my interview? And that was absolutely valid. Um, the the flip side is, is that, I mean, ultimately, the asylum process is a legal process. Um, and it is a, you know, as many legal processes is, is complicated um, and, you know, not easy to navigate. You know, I, I kind of, I, I've never been able to really find the correct analogy, but you know, it's imagine going into an exam without ever ha- without having done any revision. It isn't. It's ju- it's not so simple as just being asked tell us what happened. That is is a, a drastic oversimplification because there are criteria to be met, and unless you know what the criteria are, then how can you meet the criteria? You know, people uh, often will arrive on Lesvos and um, don't understand that it's a legal process that they're going through. You know, quite understandably. People have, you know, have made the journey, um, and then it may be the case that people think it's a purely administrative process. They just have to wait and that, you know, go through the registration process and everything else. Um, may not understand it's a legal process, or maybe if people do understand this legal process, may not understand the steps in the process, the criteria, and things like that. And maybe just one one example that really struck me, really brought it home to me, because as I said, I was a lawyer before I came out here, so. Obviously, I, you know, had a had a healthy respect for, for 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 legal processes generally, but the way that this guy explained it really brought it to life for me because again, this was in 2016, and I talked to him after he'd done his interview. So from our perspective, actually, there was nothing we could do to help him at that point. But we talked about the situation and we talked about his case anyway, and he explained that um, he had been um, he had come from Iraq. He had, arrived to Greece, he had uh, done his interview and, and he said he thought it had gone really, really well. He had, you know, explained that he knew that Greece was in a, a difficult economic situation, that um, he was a, had been a truck driver back in Iraq and that if they would let him, if they would give him the opportunity, he'd become the best truck driver in Greece, he would pay all of his taxes and, you know, be an upstanding member of Greek society and contribute to the Greek economy. And, you know, we were talking and I said, well, okay, but why then did you actually leave Iraq? He said, well, because I'm from a religious minority and a, a militia killed my family. And, you know, I said, did you did you explain this in your interview? And he said, no, because I didn't want, you know, the, the, the person interviewing me to think that I was going to be, you know, that I was weak or that I'd be 
uh, difficult. I'd be, you know, be a burden on society that um, I instead just wanted to, you know, show the, the, the benefits I could bring to the country. And it really struck me that for, if, if you didn't know anything about asylum law, that would be an absolutely logical thing to have done, of course. Um, but from an asylum law perspective, that was the worst thing he could possibly have done because he's basically said there, I'm an economic migrant. I'm, I have no issues of persecution back home. I just, you know, want a better life, um, which is, a, you know, the absolute number one um, criterion on which to refuse somebody. And, you know, if he had had the opportunity to spend even 10 minutes with a lawyer, he, you know, very quickly, he would have known that actually his idea, whilst logical, was absolutely incorrect. And that, you know, if he had explained his, sto his actual story, then uh, he would have had a much better chance of, of being granted protection. So understand, first of all, understanding the procedure and understanding the criteria that apply are obviously crucial to any process. You can't go through a, a process unless you know what the process is and what the what the you know what's expected and what's the what the criteria are. Um, the second point is in terms of the provision of legal advice and assistance, the the way that the interviews are done are that you know you have to demonstrate that uh, you you fled your country for you know because of persecution and you are at risk of persecution if you go back. And um, so you have to recount the story and re recount what happened to you. The expectation is that you will have um, you know, be able to provide evidence and be able to explain everything in precise detail. Now, many of these events happened, you know, may have happened years ago. People may have issues with recollecting them due to trauma of what happened. And I think that, again, if any of us think about it and, and somebody said to you, okay, tell me what you did precisely last Tuesday morning, most of us probably wouldn't be able to. Certainly without thinking about it firsthand and, you know, doing a timeline and talking it through and preparing. Whereas, you know, being asked, okay, what happened to you five years ago or two years ago in a completely different situation, in a completely different country, under great pressure because you're in an interview, illustrates that it is just not so simple as being asked, okay, what did, you know, tell us what happened. So an important part of what we do is, you know, we will talk with people, we'll go through their case, um, we'll talk about what evidence they may have, what evidence they may be able to get, help people in many cases, become comfortable with talking about what was often very traumatic events um, and be absolutely actually able to articulate them. And then to be able to, you know, go through their case, structure their case and, and prepare it so that they are able to actually articulate their case in a way that reflects their need. Because ultimately, that's what we as lawyers are trying to do. It's not the case that we're trying to get everybody asylum. It's the case that we're trying to make sure that everybody has a fair hearing. Um, and that they have a fair opportunity to actually put forward the case in a way that reflects their need. Um, so my kind of last question, um, and following on from that, obviously the future of forced migration and displacement is very uncertain. There's a lot of variables. We've got the ongoing pandemic. The climate crisis is obviously getting worse and is increasingly going to have an impact on forcing people to migrate, even if they're not yet covered by traditional definitions of refugee. Um, how do you see the response from countries and the management and logistical crisis, essentially, um, moving in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like you say that the situation as it is, is that we as Europe are kind of faced with a choice now um, in the sense that the issues um, that are forcing people to leave their country are not going to go away. And in a situation of, you know, increasing interconnectedness of the world, um, I think the ideas of, you know, putting up literal or metaphorical barriers just won't work. And, you know, a deterrence policy, it has been demonstrated, it, it doesn't work um, because a deterrence policy suggests that there is an element of choice uh, about the migration. And in reality, it isn't an issue of choice. People are leaving their home country because they have to. And I think that's something, again, that, you know, when you talk to um, refugees on the Greek islands, the vast, vast, vast majority of them wish they could have stayed at home and wish they were back home. They have not come out as a matter of choice. They have come because they had no alternative to keep themselves and their family safe. I think this focus on deterrence is, you know, from my own personal perspective, is the is an incorrect focus because, as well, it, the push factors in terms of the reasons for people leaving are only going to increase. As you say, with climate change, uh, you know, some of our uh, volunteers doing some really uh, former volunteers doing some really interesting work about climate refugees uh, in Strasbourg, trying to see if they can get them recognised, uh, you know, as as a basis for um, protection in itself and again issues like that are only going to get greater um, as as the years pass for certain so I do think that you know Europe has a um, you might even say Europe it's a moral crisis in the sense of you know what um, what direction does Europe want to take um, do we want to be leading in terms of uh, human rights and rule of law as you know I think a lot of the world perceives us to be quite rightly I should add as well um, or do we want to um, kind of put up the shutters and say, okay, well, um, we're going to we're going to take a, a more inward-looking view? Um, of course, from my perspective, that the, the former um, is is absolutely the um, the right way and the the the, the best way and the, and the appropriate way. Um, I think it is there are you know it is concerning at the moment some of the um, the political narratives in various countries across Europe, and I think ultimately that you know goes back to something that you mentioned earlier about what you know what individuals can do and what you know volunteering and things like that, and even on an even simple level, just having conversations with people, talking to people, um, and engaging in discourse with people about issues such as this, because I think in a vacuum, some of the more difficult and concerning political viewpoints can get more can get more traction but having a having conversations with people about this I think is is a very important step that everybody can do definitely wonderful thank you so much this has been such an interesting conversation and has really given a lot to think about both kind of in terms of theory and narratives at a much larger level and also what we can all do in our own lives Thank you for listening to Write to Refuge. For each episode, we have collated further reading resources, which you can find by visiting our website. There, you can find everything podcast-related and also how to get involved in solidarity if you want to make change. Please do subscribe, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a review as it helps other people find us.